Pastor Matt to pulpit and sharing the words of God with us. Well, good morning. Uh, it's such a privilege to be with you. My name is Matt May, as Eric said, and uh, I'm one of the pastors at North Cincinnati Community Church. So your pastor, Mark Champagne, swapped with me this morning. Uh, he's blessing us, and I hope y'all are blessed as well. Um, sadly, my family was going to join me. My wife, Eileen, and our three kids, uh, Emma, Matthew, and Andrew, couldn't join us. Uh, my daughter, she's 12. She's sick this morning, so we want to be safe there. Um, but it really is a joy and a privilege for me to be able to worship with you this morning. It's been really sweet to my soul, so thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, if you have a Bible, open up with me to the book of Exodus. We're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 20. Verse 17, um, we're going to be finishing up the 10th and final commandment. And so as you're turning there, I want to kind of give us some context where we find ourselves here in the uh, law of God in Exodus 20. You see, God has given his people the law after, this is significant, after he has already redeemed them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He has brought them out of slavery to the Egyptians over 430 years. They've been oppressed by Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and he has passed over their sin as they stood under the blood of the Lamb. And now he has brought them out to be his people. He has covenanted himself to them in Exodus 19. And he has given them his law as a love letter, not to restrain them, but actually that they might flourish and that they might have life. And then as you walk through Exodus 20, each of these commandments are telling us something about the lawgiver, what he's like, what he loves, what he cares for. And we get here to the 10th commandment, and it's no different. And the 10th commandment is no throwaway commandment because it's the last are the least important. It's actually the summary of all nine previous commandments. Because here in the 10th commandment, we find what the other nine we're getting at. It's the heart. See, the lawgiver is more concerned about our hearts than he is about our mental ascent or even about our outward obedience. He longs for us to love him from the heart. Which brings us to our text, Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 17. Read with me, God's word says this. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is in that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we pray, O oh Lord, that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful truths from this portion of your word, and that in doing so, you might be pleased to make us more and more like your Son. Holy Spirit, we pray, would you stir our affections afresh for King Jesus. And now we pray with the psalmist that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. 
for in Christ's name we pray. Amen. When I was in seminary a few years ago, probably about seven or eight years ago, uh, back in St. Louis, Missouri at Covenant Seminary, we finally had a summer off. After having summers of classes and work, we had a summer to ourselves. And we thought, you know, what can we do to rest and kind of enjoy our family? So we decided to take our family to the Mecca of all water parks, the Great Wolf Lodge, of course. So we, we took our kids, we were in St. Louis, we drove across the state to uh, Kansas City to take our kids to Great Wolf Lodge. And when we get there at this place, we walk in and our kids are ecstatic. They can't wait. So no sooner have we put our bags down in our room, everyone's changed and we're down at the water park, spending hours and hours and hours there at the park. Only to leave to come back to get a snack and to go again. And then come back and to eat dinner and then go play putt-putt and then go to the arcade, and then come back and take a shower, and then put on our jammies, and then we go down to, um, down to the bottom there, to, the, uh, to where everything's at, to hear a story being told by these people who dress up as animals. If you've ever been, you know that. They come out, and all the kids come down. They can't wait to hear this nighttime story. So our kids are really excited about that. So we get the kids settled. We're downstairs, and I'm like, man, taking it all in overwhelmed, exhausted, but thankful. I'm like, this is, this is really cool. And so I'm going around asking my kids, I'm like, hey, isn't this great, guys? Don't y'all just love this? Aren't you glad that we came all this way to Great Wolf Lodge? And they're like, Daddy, this is amazing. Thank you so much. This is incredible. And then my daughter, Emma, my oldest, says this to me. She says, Daddy, I really want to have a good time. I really want to enjoy all that we're doing. She says, but it's so hard when all I can think about is wanting that. And she points to this little girl who has a wand in her hand. See, the Great Wolf Lodge, they sell these Harry Potter-ish wands. You know, you can go around and do these scavenger hunts and open up these treasure chests, and it's pretty cool. But we had decided as a family, we're not doing that. We're going to do other things. And so what Emma was saying was, she says, she can't enjoy all that she's experiencing and all that she has because she's consumed with what she does not have and what belongs to someone else. You see, what my daughter was saying so profoundly with her words was pointing to the reality of what's true of every single one of our hearts. Is it not? That we are a discontent people, discontent with God, what God has provided us, with and habitual coveters. God knows that's our temptation. That's why he gives us in his grace the 10th commandment so that we might not covet but recognize that all we ever have or could ever need is in him. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to unpack this commandment and look at four different aspects of this thing called coveting. I want to look at first the source of our coveting let me see if I can work this. This might be. We'll see. I got a power pimp for you, so we'll see if it works. So, um, there it is. All right, four aspects. Yeah. So, the source of our coveting. Secondly, I want to look at the uh, seriousness of our coveting. Then, I want to look at the solution to our coveting. And then, lastly, I want to end by looking at the strategy God's given us to combat and to fight our covetous hearts. Okay? So, the source, the seriousness, the solution and the strategy. First, 
the source. First, the source of our coveting. You know, um, look with me here at verse 17. Look what Moses says. He says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. Let me stop there. He says, you shall not covet. The word covet here means an inordinate or an over-desire. It's longing for what you do not possess, but currently belongs to someone else. It's saying it as if what we have is not enough. It's a lust for more. And notice what he says we're not to covet. There's seven different things here in our text. He says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Seven is a Hebrew word for totality, for completeness, as if to say, hey, nothing that your neighbor has you are not to covet. Not anything, absolutely nothing. He's in essence saying this, we're not to covet our neighbor's property, our neighbor's partner, our neighbor's possessions, our neighbor's position, or our neighbor's prosperity. We're not to covet anything that belongs to him. And remember, in the scriptures, whenever you hear the word neighbor, it's not talking about your physical neighbor. It's more than that. It's actually anyone we come into contact with. We're not to covet. We have to be told not to covet over and over and over again because we're habitual coveters. You know this is true, right? Think about it. How often have you said to yourself or thought this, I wish my life was like that. I wish my job was like his job. I wish I was as skinny as she is. I wish my house was as beautiful as theirs. I wish I had his salary. I wish I was as successful as him. I wish my husband was more understanding. I wish my husband was more helpful around the house. I wish my wife was more supportive. How come they get to go on these amazing vacations all the time, but yet we're stuck every year driving 11 hours down to Georgia to visit my family? Sorry, that's a little too personal. <laughs> Why can't I make as good as grace as she can? Why am I not as athletic as he is? And on and on and on, we are habitual coveters who are discontent. And not only that, we swim in a culture of discontentment, do we not? Our culture is trying to remind us of our discontentment over and over and over again. That's what marketing is all about. They want to remind you, hey, you're discontent. You don't have what you need, but we've got just the product for you. Here's what uh, one author says, which I think is really helpful. Michael Horton says this. He says, we are suckers for the latest products, promising the latest cure for what the world has decided to be our latest problem. We are habitual coveters. I don't have to convince you of that. You know it's true. Here's the question, though. Why? What's the source of this coveting? Two things briefly. First, it's a misplaced focus. It's a misplaced focus. Look at me in verse 17. He says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Where's the focus? 
The focus isn't on God and what he's provided. The focus is on what belongs to someone else, specifically your neighbor. It's a misplaced and misdirected focus. But that's birthed from something deeper in all of us, which is a heart bent on self. That's true of every single one of us. You know this. Ever since Genesis 1 and 2, when God created you and I in his image and gave us the whole garden and said, eat and enjoy, it's all yours, to your delight, except one thing you may not eat of, the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because if you do, as surely as you do, you will die. Adam and Eve, listening to the serpent, believing the lie that God was holding out of them, gave in to their covetous desires, longing for the knowledge of God, partook of the forbidden fruit, and in doing so, in that moment, sin and death came upon them, and not just them, but all of their posterity. Because remember, Adam represented all of mankind. As Adam goes, so goes us. If he obeys, we obey. If he fails, we fail, and the curse comes to us, so that now you and I and everyone are born with hearts that are bent towards self, that makes it about us. We believe life's about me. And we have these hearts bent on coveting. And so you think, okay, Matt, you've convinced me. I covet. I mean, every once in a while, right? But is it really that big a deal? Is it that serious? I mean, it's not murder. It's not adultery. Is it really hurting anybody? Let me show you why this commandment that we break is so serious. Look at the seriousness of our coveting. And I want to talk about that in two ways. First, it's serious because it's hatred towards God. It's hatred towards God. Our coveting is hatred towards our creator because this is an expression of our discontent with his provision. Here's what we're saying when we covet, whether we like it or not. We are saying, God, what you provided for me, it's not enough. In fact, you're not enough. Whew. That's what we're saying. That's serious. In fact, in Colossians 3 verse 5, Paul lays out these lists of things we are to put to death in the flesh. Sexual morality, impurity, and he goes on and he says, covetousness, covetousness. Why? He says, because it's idolatry. It's idolatry. Because when we covet something else, our affections are drawn away from our maker, away from our creator, and towards his creation. They're allured away to the thing we long to possess, which actually, ironically, ends up possessing us. And we know this, right? Anytime we say, I wish I had this. If only my life was like that. Whatever you fill that blank in with becomes to you in that moment your functional savior. That which you look to provides you with life, security, happiness, and fulfillment. And when we do that, we displace God in his rightful place. And we exalt something else. And we spit in his face. So we see that the Ten Commandments, the Tenth specifically, comes full circle. Because to break the Tenth Commandment is actually to break the First Commandment. When God says, there shall be no other gods before me. So 
Coveting is serious because it's hatred towards God. But secondly, it's hatred towards our neighbor. It's hatred towards our neighbor. I love how this author, Kevin DeYoung, says this. Let me read this quote he says to you. He says, when we covet, we think only of what is good for us, what we would like, what would make us happy, and what can make our lives better, regardless of how others are affected. That's so true. When we covet, we're saying, I don't care about you. I just care about what you have and getting what you have. It dehumanizes people. And it keeps us from being present with people because all we can think about is what we want and what we can get. And when we covet, it actually disrupts God's community. Do you know that actually who this was written to? The Ten Commandments weren't written to individuals. They were written to a covenant community, a people of God. Not just for individual flourishing, but for the flourishing of the community. So when we covet, it disrupts community. Here's why. What do you think breaking the 6th, 7th, 8th, and ninth commandments are birthed from? Murder, adultery, stealing, bearing fault witness. You know where it comes from? Breaking the 10th commandment. Coveting what you do not have and what you want. It disrupts community. And it, it keeps us from being a blessing. It keeps us from being a blessing and being generous. We can't be generous with our time, with our talents, with our treasures, because we're so focused on what we can get, there's no space to actually give. And more than that, it prevents us from living out the calling that God's given every single one of his children to be his ambassadors, to represent him in the world as his image bearers, imaging forth, reflecting forth to the world what our God is like and what our God cares for. That he is a self-giving God and a self-sacrificing God even to his own detriment for the sake of our blessing. It prevents us from representing him rightly when we covet. Do you realize that during the Reformation, during the Reformation, y'all probably heard a lot about that, that the Christians had such a radical impact on the culture around them, socially, physically, politically, economically, and ultimately, obviously, spiritually. But that was never their intent. That wasn't their aim. Their aim was the glory of God and the good of others. They longed to be great commandment Christians, to make much of King Jesus and live for the good of their neighbor. And in the process, they blessed those around them. Sadly, if we're honest, the church in the West, in America, has lost its saltiness. We fail to be a blessing to our neighbors. Why? Because we're so covetous. We're so consumed with ourselves. We've forgotten who we are. More importantly, whose we are. We belong to the king. And we exist for his glory and the good of others. It's serious when we covet because it's hatred towards God and it's hatred towards our neighbors. 
But what are we going to do about it? Is that just the way we have to be? What's the solution to our hearts that are bent towards coveting? Well, I think the solution is this. The solution is found in the law itself, beautifully. God gives us the solution in his law, specifically the purpose of the law. You see, the law was given to us first and foremost as to be a mirror that we would hold up to ourselves to expose our hearts, to see ourselves rightly. Because the law shows us what's true about us. We can't hide from what's real about every single one of us, that we fall short of the glory of God. I love how Martin Luther talks about this 10th commandment specifically. He says, the 10th commandment is the final blow to anyone who believes that they still have a leg to stand on after the first nine commandments. Here's what he's saying. If we somehow believe we can keep the first nine, there is not a person in this world that can keep the 10th. We're all guilty of breaking the 10th commandment, which means we're guilty of breaking them all. And because of that, our sin, we can't stand before a holy God. And his justice is due us. He would be right to pour out his wrath upon us this day without hope if it was up to us to uphold his law. But praise God that the law does something else. The law, Galatians 3.24 says, is a tutor that leads us to Christ. It's a guide that leads us outside of ourselves, beyond ourselves to someone greater, to the law keeper, the one who never coveted, the one who lived perfectly before the Father on our behalf, never once sinning, always obeying. And for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and then God, by his power, resurrected him to his right hand, where he currently sits, interceding for us this very hour. That's good news. He doesn't leave us in our state. He comes to us. He deals with our sin. He deals with the penalty of that sin by absorbing God's wrath in its fullness on the cross. And then he dismantles the power that sin has over you and I this day. So we don't have to say yes to sin. We can say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, Titus 2 says, and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age by his grace. Which is what Romans 7 actually points out. I want to show you something here that's pretty cool. In Romans 7, the Apostle Paul gives us a good picture of this by quoting this very commandment, this very verse. Paul says, I didn't know what sin was until it came to this commandment that said, do not covet. It was this commandment that exposed his heart, that revealed to him that he could not uphold God's perfect law, that he was a sinner in desperate need of a Savior. That chapter goes on, if you're familiar with chapter 7, he talks about living the Christian life and indwelling sin. And how do we wrestle with this, this constant battle between doing what we don't want to do and then not doing what we do want to do? And he ends with this glorious word in, in verses 24 and 25. He says, wretched man am I, who will deliver me from this body of decay? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's it. That's the key. That's the solution. We need a fresh look at the cross. 
It's here. It's here where our coveting dies. It's here where our idolatry of self dwindles and withers away. It's here where we see the love of God on display in all its fullness. And it's this love that compels us to no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and was raised again. That's the solution. Now, what's the strategy? How are we to fight this coveting? Two ways. We'll move quickly here. Two ways, two strategies. The first is to combat covetousness. Combat covetousness. Here's what I mean. Fight with it. Don't play around with it. Remember, it's serious. Put it to death, Paul says. Kill it. Fight. How do we do that? There's a couple of ways I've got here for us, practically. The first is this. Practice the discipline of giving thanks. Practice the discipline of giving thanks. We are a thankless people. I am, maybe not you, but we are a thankless people. We've got to discipline ourselves to be thankful. To be thankful for what God's provided for us through his grace. That he is the one who's given us life, breath, and everything else, his word says. And when we're tempted to covet, when we find this temptation brewing within us to be bitter, to be discontent, to long for more, pause, pray, give thanks, for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. Secondly, figure out ways to serve others. Figure out ways to serve others. Seek to serve others instead of this incessant desire within to serve ourselves. Give our attention to what we were called to do. You were made to give yourself away and to be a blessing. Seek to serve, serve others. Third, I don't have it on here, but I'll, let me say this. Don't put yourself in situations where you're tempted to covet. Don't put yourself in, tempted, in situations where you're tempted to covet. Like Facebook or Pinterest or fill in the blank. Here's one, a good example of this. So... A few months ago, I was looking at Facebook, and one of my friends had just bought a new truck. He, he's, he's talking about this trip they just went on. They got to go to the World Series, which is baseball, uh, where the Atlanta Braves, which I love the Atlanta Braves being from Georgia, won the World Series. So he took his kids to the World Series. I was like, man. And then, three weeks later, he's taking his kids now to Indianapolis to go watch the national championship, where the Georgia Bulldogs were playing Alabama, and they won. I'm like, must be nice. I wish I had his money, and I felt in that moment just this welling up. I'm really bitter. I'm judgmental, and I'm discontent. I just needed to step away. Maybe that's not you, but what are those things that tempt you to be discontent and to covet? Stay away from those things, and lastly with that, covet the right things. Covet the right things. This is crazy. Do you know that the scriptures actually tell us to covet? Like, what? 1 Corinthians 12, 31. I'll have to let Mark explain this because it's too difficult for me. So when he comes back next week, ask him. But 1 Corinthians 12, 31, in the King James Version, it tells us to covet the gifts of the Spirit. The ESV says, eagerly desire these things. Basically, eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit. 
the Spirit's work in our lives. Here's what he means. Instead of coveting what we don't have, are we longing and eagerly desiring that the fruit of the Spirit might be born in our hearts and in our lives? Are we praying, God, make me more loving, more joyful, more peaceful, more patient, more kind, more faithful, more gentle, more self-controlled? Is that what you're longing for? That's how we combat our covetousness. But it's not enough. We also need at the same time to cultivate contentment. We gotta cultivate contentment. You realize that we don't wake up content? You don't wake up one morning like, oh, I feel content. That doesn't happen naturally. I love how we read Philippians 4 earlier where Paul is very clear. He has learned what it is to be content. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in plenty or in want, no matter the circumstance, he says, I have learned what it is to be content. How did he learn that? He learned it in the school of God's presence. You learn contentment in the school of God's presence, spending time with King Jesus over and over and over until you find that he is more than enough. What's that look like practically? Three things. I know I got a lot, but this is helpful. First, trust in his providence. You cultivate contentment by trusting in his providence. Do you realize that the situation that God has you in and everything that you have is exactly what you need for such a time as this? You realize that? He's not holding out. Everything you need you have no matter the circumstance and anytime you believe and are tempted to believe that God's not good that he's withholding that what you have is not enough remember what he's given I love how Romans 8 32 says it this way it says he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things hey he didn't withhold his son he is not going to hold out on you. He longs to be gracious to you. Bank on that. Trust in that. Trust in his providence. Secondly, rest in his promise. Rest in his promise. There's a passage, and I know I'm giving you a lot of scripture, but I want to tell you what God's word says. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6 uh, the writer of Hebrews writes out this exhortation to these Christians. He says, don't put your hope in money. It's a good word for me. Don't put your hope in money. He says, rather, rest content. And the basis, he says, for this contentment is the promise of God. Specifically, this promise that he has said to us, never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. There it is. That's the promise. Never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. He's with us in the boat of life's storms. He's present to the very end and actually beyond the grave. We are united by Christ through faith and nothing can separate us from his love. He is with us. 
no matter the circumstance you face, and you're going to face some horrible ones. We all will, because life is hard. We live in a broken world, but King Jesus is coming in to make all things new. In the meantime, no matter what circumstance you find yourself in, realize that he is with you, that our Heavenly Father is present, and he's near, and he's sufficient, and he's good, and he's enough. Rest in his promise, and then lastly, rejoice in his grace. Rejoice in his grace. You want to cultivate contentment? Meditate, ponder on his magnificent, abundant, glorious, never-ending, always overflowing grace to you and to I, wretched sinners that we are. Who are we that he would consider us and set his affection on us and crush his son to reconcile a people like us? Let that captivate your hearts. I love how Tim Keller says it this way. I don't know if you can read that. But he says this, To rejoice is to treasure a thing, to assess its value to you, to reflect on its beauty and importance until your heart rests in it and taste the sweetness of it. This will allow you to relax your grip on anything else your heart believes it needs and cling to that which is of your greatest value and our ultimate need, Christ Jesus himself. You want to learn how to fight against coveting? Rejoice in the gospel of God's grace to you and be enamored by his love. That's the strategy. But I want to end where we began by asking the question, what is that wand that my little daughter was pointing to? What is that wand for you and for me that makes you think, I need this and my life would be complete if I have this? The tenth commandment in God's grace is calling us to turn from that and to set your gaze afresh on him who is the fount of every blessing and who Psalm 1611 says that in his presence is fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Feast on him, brothers and sisters. And John 6 reminds us, you will never hunger again and you will never thirst because you will rest content. May God be pleased to make us a people like that. Amen. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, God, so thankful for the gospel of grace and your love for us, which is on display and demonstrated that while we were yet sinners, Christ, you died for us to make us your own and call us your treasured people. Not that we would live for ourselves, but that we would live for you, making much of you because you are worthy. Father, make us a people who are content because we know that in you, we find our all and all. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.